0: Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. We hope to enrich your life through reaching, serving, giving, and building. As you listen to this teaching, be inspired to fulfill your God-given destiny through the power of His Word. Fantastic. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ruth the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, just four small chapters, a little bitty book kind of hidden, tucked away in the Old Testament. I think it's got a lot of truth. T- truth from Ruth. Come on, somebody. Truth? Hey, man, hey, you saw that? Just dropped a little revelation right there. Wasn't even prepared for that. Truth from Ruth. On the eve of Valentine's, fellas, in case you didn't know, in two days, there's kind of an important day that you don't want to miss. Don't forget about Valentine's. Did you guys get chocolate on the way in? How many got some candy on the way in? Got some sweet tarts, got some Smarties, got some nerds, got some Milky Way. Um, Valentine's Day. Let me give you some quick candy facts. Did you know that $448 million are spent on candy the week before February 14th? In one week, $448 million. Uh, 36 million heart-shaped chocolate boxes are sold each year. Now, this is an interesting statistic. 8 billion, not not million, but 8 billion sweethearts, the little heart candies that have the words on them. How many know what I'm talking about? 8 billion sweethearts are produced every year. Just to give you some context of what that looks like, that's enough to stretch from Rome, Italy, all the way to valentine arizona and back 20 times how many sweet tooths do we have oh yeah just talking about candy makes me excited um the average american consumes 25 pounds of candy each year 25 pounds how many feel like you've consumed 25 already in the first six weeks of this year 25 pounds of candy. And then finally, men, men spend twice the amount of money on Valentine's Day gifts than women spend. We spent, fellas, we spend twice as much, and the average is $130 on Valentine's gifts. Some of you ladies are writing down that $130 and you're trying to evaluate, is he average? Is he below average? Is he above? You know, it's funny because when you give a gift, how many knows that a gift says something? It's important. When you, when you give a gift, you want to give the right gift. And I'll never forget the first Valentine's gift, the first Valentine's that Rachel and I celebrated as a married couple. And when when you're, when you're first married, how many of you know you're broke like no joke? I mean, you're on a tight budget. And and this first Valentine's, it's, it's an important one. And so want to give the right gift, but you're limited on resources. And so we just, it was an endeavor to find the perfect gift. And so we, uh, we in search of the perfect gift, we, we ended up at Walmart (laughs) and, um, come on, if you can't find it at Walmart, come on, talk to me. I mean, if it ain't in Walmart, listen. So we go to Walmart in search of the perfect gift and we split up. We went separate ways. And so, you know, she's on the hunt for a gift for me and I'm looking for something for her. And we end up bumping into each other on the pots and aisles pan. And, and I have a card for her and she has a card for me. So I'm like, girl, let me read that card. So she, she let me read the card and, and I'm like, hey, and here, here's your card for you. So she read my card and then we hugged and then we kissed XOXO. And then we put the cards back on the shelf <laughs> and just roll. Oh, yeah. True story. Am I lying, baby? If I'm lying, I'm dying. That's exactly what we did, right? Now, how many know that works for your first Valentine's? But, guys, if you've been married 20 years, don't try to pull that stunt. In fact, just a little, a little help for fellas, okay? When your girl says, oh, you know, you don't really need to get me anything. <laughs> February 14th, it's just another date on the calendar. Our love is so much bigger than that. <laughs> fellas, can I translate that? That's code language. Here, here's what this means to you. When she says, oh, no, don't worry about it. I'm fine. Don't get me anything. Here's what she means. You better get me something. And you better not wait till the last minute and it better be good at least $130 worth. Uh, the book of Ruth, this is the, in the old Testament, it's the ultimate Cinderella story. It really is. It is amazing. And I want to do my best in the short time that we have together today to unpack some thoughts, to give you some context, a little bit of history around this story that I think makes a big splash, not just then, But even now, the ripple effects of this, we still live in the wake of what God did in this incredible love story. Um, Just to to give you a little outset, it's called the book of Ruth because she is one of the main characters. But really, I think the the feature character of this story is a lady named Naomi. Naomi. Now, now Ruth is the daughter-in-law to Naomi. Here's what you need to know about Naomi. Naomi's name in Hebrew literally means the sweetness of Yahweh, the sweetness of Yahweh. I don't know if you've ever tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that God is is just, there's something sweet about his presence. You've experienced the the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your family. You just sense destiny in God. The sweetness of Yahweh is what her name means. But I want to talk to you about, if you're taking notes, because we all know that history makers are Note note takers. I want you to write this down somewhere. I want to talk to you about how to go from bitter to sweet. From, from bitter to sweet. Because here's what you need to know about this story. Naomi's name means the sweetness of Yahweh. And if, if she had like a, a, a nickname, they probably called her Sweetie Pie. I don't know. Do you have anybody? Any Sweetie Pies in here? Any honey buns? How many you wish you had a honey bun right now? Sweetie Pie. Sweet. But you know, we pick up this story and life is not sweet for Naomi. Okay? I want you to consider she was married to a man named Elimelech. And they were living in Bethlehem, which was part of the promised land. They were living in Judah. She was married, a part of the people of God. She was a Hebrew. She was an Israelite. And so there were certain promises that God gave his people. Now, I want you to consider this. There are two important things, and you need to jot this down somewhere because you'll see later on in the story how this comes into play. But for the people of God, two things were important, land and line. Okay? Land. Everybody say land. land. Say line. Now, when I say line, I'm talking about a bloodline, okay? So here, the people of God were in the place of God. They were in Bethlehem, in, in Judah. There, there was certain territory, the promised land. Now, the, the bloodline was important because God's hand was upon His people. You didn't venture outside of the line. So here they are living, Naomi with her husband and her two sons. But the Bible says a famine hit the land. And so they moved from Bethlehem into a land called Moab. Now, the Moabites were not the people of God, and their land was not the promised land. But famine drove them from the promise of God to venture out and to explore other things. Well, over time, Naomi's husband passed away. She's a widow, and she's got two sons that have married Moabite women. Now, I want you to see what the situation Naomi's in. She's lost the land in in a sense. She's no longer in the promised land. She's in Moab. And her two sons have married outside of the Hebrew line. They've married Moabites. Foreign women. So she no longer has the land and she's compromised the line. She's a widow. And scripture tells us that after her husband died, both of her sons passed away. And here she is left with two foreign daughters in law. She's away from the people, she's away from the place, and her life has turned bitter. In fact, she told her friends, Don't call me Naomi anymore. Life isn't sweet. Call me Mara, and that word Mara in Hebrew means bitter. Some of you are here today, and life is bitter to you. It's difficult even to come to church and and celebrate, and you see other people walking in the sweetness of God, but when you look at your life and, and how things have turned out, maybe like Naomi, you feel like you've lost. Some of you have lost loved ones. You've lost family members and friends. Maybe some of you have lost your health and you battle with sickness. Maybe some of you have lost a relationship, something that you held out hope for and it's no longer there. And you come to church and you feel isolated and you feel alone. I'm going to tell you what, if you're in a bitter season in your life, there's no time you need community more, but probably never a time where you wanted it less. Sometimes pain has a, a way of isolating us. And Naomi finds herself in isolation. And so she tells her daughters-in-law, says, listen, I'm going back to Bethlehem. I've got to go back home. I want to tell you, you, you don't, don't follow me. Don't come with me. Just go back to your families. You see, Naomi had no future. She had no other choice but to come home the hard way. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have been there. Life has been so difficult, you didn't know how to move forward, and so you simply went back. And here's where we pick up the story of Ruth and Naomi. Ruth chapter 1, four, verses, or four chapters, I want to give you four thoughts. I want to take each chapter and give you a single word that will help construct the story that God wants to teach us from today. Chapter 1, verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Can I have an amen for the reading of the word? Have you heard these verses before? If you've ever been to a wedding, maybe you've heard these verses quoted. It's amazing to me to see the commitment that Ruth had toward her mother-in-law. If you're taking notes, write down the word commitment. Everybody say commitment. Now, I've I've discovered this. Decisions are made with the head, but commitments are made with the heart. There was something inside of Ruth that said, Naomi, I'm committed to you. Don't ask me to leave you. I know you feel like God has forsaken you and, and you've got no future, but listen, You're all I've got, so wherever you go, I'm going. Wherever you stay, that's where I'm going to stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. You see, there was something about commitment inside of Ruth that was a game changer. I want you to know this. When you make commitments to the Lord, it's amazing the things that come against you. How many know what I'm talking about? Can I tell you what fights your commitments? Emotions. Feelings circumstances, thoughts, logic, even people. The enemy of your soul will do everything within his power to cause you to neglect or forfeit the commitments that you've made. But I want you to see how commitment is the key to how this whole story unfolds. It's easy to cave when life is down and circumstances have you down. It's easy for you to neglect your commitments. But I want you to know this, when you make a commitment to God, when you make a commitment to God's people, when you make a commitment to God's house, those commitments will always be tested. And, you, you know, sometimes we, we will let go of commitments that we've made because we don't realize what's on the other side of that commitment. Now, you and I have the, the, the vantage point of reading four chapters, the book of Ruth, and we know the story from beginning to end. But this was their life. They didn't know. It's easy to get down when life has you down. But Ruth said, you know what? I'm going with you. I'm staying with you. Doesn't matter about feelings. Doesn't matter about circumstances. Wherever you go, I'm going. You see, I believe that's the kind of commitment that God looks for from his people. When I made a decision, when I said yes to Jesus years and years ago, I didn't say yes to him based on how I felt. or that I would ride off into the sunset of eternal Christianity bliss. How many you know it doesn't work that way? 20 years ago when Rachel and I stood at an altar and we looked each other in the eyes and we made a covenant with God and with each other. It was for better or for worse. It was for richer or for poorer. It was sickness and in health till death. How many know sometimes in a relationship you you get poor? (laughs) Sometimes you get sick. Sometimes things get worse. Come on, are you? am I talking to anybody? But your commitment to the Lord is what's most important because what's on the other side of that is absolutely amazing he requires commitment up front. In fact, I remember one of my favorite stories. I think I heard Max Lucado share this years ago. True story of a young man named Lieutenant John Blanchard and a young lady named Hollis Maynell. And back in the 1940s during World War II, uh, John was in the Navy and he was about to be deployed to Europe. He's in Florida in a library and he's reading a book. And as he's reading the book, he notices there are notes that someone made in the margin. Have you seen that? You ever checked out a book and read? Okay, we don't check out books anymore. We don't go to libraries anymore. (laughs) We Google it, right? But back in the day, when you go to the library and check out a book, you you see somebody has, has made notes in the margin. Well, John is so fascinated by the notes that are made in the margin, he's no longer reading the book, but he's reading the commentary of the person who had checked it out before. So with the help of the librarian, he tracks it down to a young lady named Hollis Maynell. He gets her address, and he sends her a letter and says, Hollis, look, my name is John, and uh, I I was reading this book. I think you had probably read it before me. I'm getting ready to go to Europe. You know, I'm going to be uh, uh, sent out to serve our country. If you don't mind, could we just keep correspondence? I'd love to be able to write you back and forth. Well, Hollis said, well, sure, that's no harm in that, of course. So for 13 months, they exchanged letters. John was at war, and Hollis was back in the States. And John found himself falling in love with a lady whose face he'd never seen, but whose heart he felt like he knew. Well, so he's telling all of his buddies about this girl, Hollis, and they, they don't believe him. She's too good to be true. There's no way that that she really exists. So John wrote a letter, said, Hollis, can you send me a picture of yourself? All of my guys are giving me a hard time. I want to prove them wrong. She wrote back and said, John, if we love each other like we say we do, then looks don't matter. Hmm. Thirteen months roll by. John sends a letter, says, listen, I'm about to come home. My tour is complete. I would love to meet up with you. She said, great, let's meet in New York and lower Manhattan at this cafe. So the date and the time was set. Seven o'clock rolls around. That's the time they were supposed to meet and Lieutenant John is there in his dress blues. He's got flowers in one hand and he's got that book that started this whole thing in the other. He's waiting, seven o'clock. 705. Now she had written him a letter saying, you'll be able to recognize me by the red rose that I wear on my lapel. That was the only thing he had to go by. He didn't know who it could be, what she'd look like, but he was looking for that rose. Well, about 715 into that cafe walks a beautiful blonde. I mean, drop dead gorgeous wearing a green dress. I mean, eyes, blue eyes. And she looks at John and says, Hey, sailor, you going my way? About that time, out of his peripheral vision, he sees at a table in the corner, he sees an older lady, graying hair. She was uh, not super attractive, but she was wearing that red rose. And so Johnny clutched that book. He let that beautiful blonde walk by. He gets up, walks across the cafe and says, hey, Hollis, my name's John. I, I think this book belongs to you. If you let me, I'd love to take you out to dinner. Well, that elder elder lady looked at him and said, young man, I don't know what this is all about, but 10 minutes ago, that blonde over there, she begged me to wear this red rose on my lapel and told me that if you were to ask me out to dinner, she'd be waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. Come on, somebody say "Commitment." commitment. Do you see what happens when you commit? I'm telling you commitment's not based on your feelings, on your emotions or on your circumstances. Commitment is based in here. You see my concern for the church is this, we don't understand commitment anymore. We know about convenience. But but, but we don't we don't really sell out to commitment. Sometimes we shop for churches like we're shopping for a car. Come on some. You know what you know what convenience says? What can you do for me? Convenience says, what can I get out of it? You know what commitment says? What can I give to you? You see, I want you to consider this. Naomi, at a bitter moment in her life, God sends a young Moabite girl named Ruth. Watch this. God sends Ruth as a gift to Naomi. And in her bitterness, she's reminded that the Lord is with her and that the Lord loves her. I'm going to tell you this. You will never forget how people treat you when you're in your lowest moments. When you're going through bitter circumstances, God will send individuals to your life, just like Ruth, who says, Naomi, I'm with you, and I'm for you. Does that make sense? Yes. I want you to see how commitment is the key that unlocks so many other doors. Look in chapter 2. Here's the this, this second thought. Look at verse 2. One day, one day Ruth, the Moabite, says to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields and let me pick up stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. Now, let me stop right here and say this. Do you see how Ruth and Naomi, they didn't wallow in self-pity? You see what Ruth says? Let me go out into the fields. Let me get to work. I'm going to tell you this. If you're going through a bitter season in your life, Resist the temptation to give in to self-pity. Self-pity is the most debilitating thing that a believer could ever experience. You know, think about it. Self-pity. When your mind is on self, you end up in the pit. Are you with me? The devil wants you to think about everything they said about you, everything they've done to you, all the injustice in your life, and he'll get you going in circles about your pain. And if you're not careful, you will build a monument to the pain of your past and you'll just camp out and you'll worship that monument. Ruth didn't say, oh, woe was us? Look at us. My husband's died. Your husband's died. Here we are. We don't know how we're going to make it. The Bible says she got up and said, let me do something. Now watch this. I think this is a word for somebody because when you, when you suffer loss and you experience pain, it's easy just to shut things down and stay right there. Hear me. This is for somebody. Don't look at what you've lost. Look at what you have left and rebuild on that. If you're constantly grieving over what you've lost, then you'll neglect what you have left. I'm telling you, there's something that's still within your stewardship. And God says, here's where you rebuild. You can't rebuild on something that you've lost, but you got to look at what's in front of you and start right there. Ruth says, hey, Naomi, I'm going to go to the fields and I'm going to try to get something. well, I just feel there's a Holy Ghost. Oh, this is strong. So Ruth, she goes out to gather grain behind the harvesters. Watch this. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. Verse three, she went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And the Bible says, as it happened. Now, there's a reason why I underline that. As it happened. It just so happened. Can I tell you this? In the kingdom, there is no such thing as coincidence. It just so, has it happened, or, you know, what are the odds? Have you ever experienced something, and here you are, you're, you're in the right place uh, at the right time, and you connect with the right person, and you're thinking, man, what are the odds? I was just talking about that the other day and I checked my email and in my inbox, you wouldn't believe. Or you know who I ran into the other day? Man, I was just, I was putting gas in my car and I saw so-and-so and and started talking to him and they told me about a job opportunity. What are the odds that I would have been, I never stop at that gas station. I never walk in that restaurant at that time. Man, how random is that? Can I tell you? There's no such thing as random. It's called kingdom. It's not random. Whoa people say, man, you're just so lucky. What? Are you kidding me? It's not called luck. You know what it's called? It's called favor. Somebody say favor. I want you to write down that word. Number two, write down the word favor. Okay. And as it happened, she's working in a field. She takes initiative. She's not living in self-pity. But as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Oh, and let me tell you about this man named Boaz. Yeah. Oh. The Boaz just happened to be a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Are you kidding me? Do you see how these dots are starting to be Connected, You see, if you've ever done a, a dot-to-dot connection as a kid, all you see is a paper full of dots. But if you start at one and you just follow the Holy Ghost to number two, maybe number three is over here and you have no idea how number three even makes sense. But he's going to send you all the way across the page to get to number three. And some of you thought, man, what am I doing here? What I've never pictured my life looking like this. Well, God said number three is a part of his divine design. It's not random. It's not by chance. Pants. There's no, well, well, wait a second, wait a second. Who, no, no. This is God orchestrating every detail. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Let's skip on down to verse 15. When Ruth went back to work again, this is so good. Boaz ordered his young men, hey, listen, that girl over there, let her gather grain right among the sheaves and don't stop her. Don't hinder her. Don't give her a hard time. In fact, here's what I want you to do. Pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and what? Drop them on purpose. purpose. I'm telling you, God has handfuls of favor that he's just going to drop on purpose right in front of you. She's like, well, wait a second. How did I end up in this field? How did I get all this grain? She's picking up the grain and she goes to Naomi at the end of the day, and Naomi's like, What? And Ruth was like, I, I, I don't know. They're, they're, they're just so kind to me. I'm telling you what, favor will open doors that no man can shut. Favor is something you can't figure out, it's something, favor is something you'll never be able to take credit for. You can't say, well, my talent did this, or my work ethic did this, or my ability did this. Nope, it's favor. When God drops handfuls of favor in your life, it can only point to one thing Jesus. He says, let her pick them up. In fact, drop some handfuls on purpose. I'm believing that some of you are in a bitter season. If you'll make a commitment to the house of God, to the people of God, to the place of God, then you'll see handfuls of favor drop on purpose right in front of you. And and it's God's way of reminding you, I'm with you. I'm for you. Are you catching this? You see, listen, there's a a divine connection between favor and faithfulness. Favor rests on faithful men and women. As we walk in faithfulness, we begin to discern God's favor. You don't have to chase favor down. Favor will come find you. If you keep your eyes on the prize and you stay focused on what he's put in front of you, you'll find handfuls of favor dropped on purpose. Now, look at chapter 3. Everybody say commitment. Everybody say favor. Now, everybody say preparation. Oh, check this out. Ruth chapter 3, verse 3. Now, this is what Naomi says. Now, do as I tell you. Do as I tell you. Go take a bath. Some of you, parents of small kids, you need to have your children memorize that one. It's biblical. Go take a bath. Put on some of that nice, sweet-smelling perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet. Everybody say feet. This is important. Go and uncover his feet and lie down right there. He's going to tell you what to do. Let me tell you this. Boaz in this story is a picture of Christ. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But I want you to see what happens when Ruth positions herself at his feet. I don't know what you need in your marriage or what you need in your finances or what you need with your children or what you need with the health and strength in your body. But you're going to find everything you need at the feet of Jesus. If you look at the New Testament and you look at the Gospels and you see anybody who placed themselves at Jesus's feet, they always got exactly what they were looking for. Now, maybe it was hardness, hard times and difficult situations that drove them to his feet. Maybe it was pain. Maybe it was hurt. Maybe it was sorrow. It was struggle. Maybe pain, maybe bitterness is driving you to a certain place. Don't let bitterness isolate you. Let bitterness draw you to the very feet of Jesus. When she placed herself at his feet. Here's what's interesting. Naomi says, hey, go clean up. Go put on some perfume. Go change your clothes. Let me tell you this. You dress for where you're going and not for where you've been. Hear me. You dress for where you're going and not for where you've been. Some of you, God's saying in the spirit, you need to change your clothes. It's called expectation. Expectation. You see, when you dress for where you're going, you think about what's in front of you. Naomi was trying to get Ruth prepared. Why? Because preparation will put you in position. Are you are you catching this? Preparation will put you in position. God's trying to drop handfuls of favor in front of you. There, there's a promise before you. But if you're out of position, then you're not going to be able to receive what God's trying to give you. Hey, listen, you go put yourself at his feet. There's a certain sense of expectation. I can just hear it in Naomi's voice. She's telling all of her friends, don't call me the sweetness of Yahweh. Call me bitter because life has been so hard. But now in chapter three, you begin to sense hope coming back into Naomi. You sense expectation. She tells her, her daughter-in-law, hey, listen, this is what you do. Expectation is a big thing. Preparation is a big thing. I can remember when when Rachel and I were leading college ministry here, and I loved it. There was a, probably for about four or five years, we did a a thing called late night, and we had service for college students. It didn't start till nine o'clock. I mean, no, I'm getting too old to do that now, and that's bedtime for me, but man, nine o'clock, we cranking up service, and you know, what was so unique about college ministry, college and young adult, I could literally be in that service. And close my eyes and know exactly what was going on. Because there was something about the smell. College kids, man, when you're scoping and hoping, when you're single and ready to mingle, how many know you don't just show up? You come prepared. Now, as an adult, you know, and we got kids, and if you've had small kids, you know this. You're just lucky to get your kids dressed and get them to church. Never mind the fact you didn't brush your teeth or put on any deodorant. I mean, adult service is a little different. But college students, when they come to church expecting to meet someone, they come prepared. Healing Place, we come here on Sundays expecting to meet someone. We don't just show up. Well, I wonder what Mike's got for us today. We're not just going through the motions. Listen, man, we come here with expectation. We come with a sense of preparation. Why? Because we're going to position ourselves before the Lord. You know why this is important? Because you've got needs. I've got needs. And Jesus has everything we need. She positions herself at his feet, and I don't have time to give all of the nuances of that. But in that way, she was presenting herself to Boaz. He wakes up and looks at her and says, wow, I've heard of your kindness to your mother-in-law, and now I've seen it for myself. I'm a part of your family network. I'm going to redeem you. Now, why is this important? Because of land and because of the line. Land. And line. Look at what it says in the final chapter in Ruth, chapter 4, verse 14. Just to fast forward, ask the band to come up, I want to pray over you. I want you to go back and read this because it, it, the details of this are just phenomenal. But, but Boaz, sitting in the city with all of the officials, negotiates for Ruth because there was a redeemer in the family that was of closer kin. He had the first right of refusal. And Boaz says, hey, listen, that girl, Ruth, you know, if if you want to redeem her, the land is yours. And the guy said, well, yeah, I'd like to do that. But then he says, well, you also got to marry her, too. She's a part of the package deal. The guy says, no, okay, I'm out. So Boaz says, then she's mine. So the Bible says that they made a covenant that was witnessed by all the city officials and Boaz, who represents Christ, who represents strength, who represents abundance. He reaches out to this Moabite foreigner. Notice she's not a Hebrew. She's not a part of the people of God. Listen, she came from a different line and she lived in a different land. But Boaz married her. And watch what happens out of this union. Look at what it says in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Hey, sweetie pie. Hey, Naomi. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. You know what the word redeem means? It means to convert into something of value. If you have a coupon and you redeem that coupon, that coupon's just a piece of paper, but when you redeem it, it's converted into something of value. All the ladies said, hey, Naomi, praise the Lord. Check out what's happened. Now the Lord has provided your family with a redeemer and may this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law, Watch this. Who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. How many sons did Naomi lose? And they said, this daughter-in-law of yours has been better to you than seven. Can I tell you this? When God restores, he doesn't just give back what was lost. He gives it back even better. Been better to you. Now, Now, here's what you need to know. Ruth and Boaz They get together. God gives them a child. His name is Obed. Obed means worshiper or servant. Obed gets married. He has a child. His name is Jesse. Jesse gets married. He has a child. His name is David. Are you watching this? Are you watch this? Watch this. David, and through the generations, all of a sudden now. There's a child that is born that has changed human history. 2,000 years ago to Mary and Joseph in a little town called... (laughs) I'm sure when Naomi was in Bethlehem and she had to leave, she thought she'd never be back and life was hard. But God brought her right back to the same place. And then years later, (laughs) in a little stable, there's a child that's born. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus would save his people from their sin. And now you read in Matthew, the line of Christ. Guess whose name is in that line? Ruth. You kidding me? Wait, wait. Land and line. Wait a sec. She's not in the line. Can I tell you something about the gospel? You know what makes the gospel offensive? Because the gospel offends people. Let me tell you how. Not on who it excludes, but who it includes. The gospel offends people not on who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Are you kidding me? Ruth, a Moabite girl, She's from pagan people. And you read Matthew chapter one, read verses five and six and you'll see her name just kind of snuggled in right there. I don't, know, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the bitterness that you've experienced. I don't know how outside or foreign you feel to the things of God, but there's a place for you in his kingdom. There's a promise, everybody say promise. There's a, and this is the beauty of the story. It starts with commitment, but then it ends with a promise that's fulfilled. I want you to know that that promise is for you and it's for me too. Do you receive that today? Thank you for listening. For more information about Healing Place Church, go to healingplacechurch.org or give us a call at 225-753-2273.